you Yeah, yo There whenever it matters and even more when you feel like it doesn't Protect you so you never feel like you wasn't Know I'm right alongside you, here by that I'm behind you But always got you, end the discussion, nothing means more First one to offer his shoulders for what you preach for Thought I saw the eyes of the world until I seen yours And know that I ain't see a better view yet I'm with whatever, so don't ever you fret Know that you covered, not a hurdle or a heartbreak To change what a partake Cause none of them won't ever get comfortable in your walkway My job is to aware you, fully loaded Prepare you for all of the above that I'm never letting get near you. But still, I know, give you every advantage I found. Couldn't find a better fit for them, along with my crown. And since the baton was passed, hopping down, cause feeling's not an option, and dad is not a noun, not at all. I'm Marvin Harrison and I'm a dope black dad. It's a Sunday afternoon and these fathers are meeting up to discuss and to podcast what it means to be a dad and specifically a black dad. Where every father is dealing with how to cross the road, to eat your greens, how to behave, manners, morality. But then on top of that, what you're trying to do is keep your child alive in quite a hostile environment. Black men have been ultimately perceived to be sort of angry, aggressive. They've, there's been a narrative painted that we are not welcome, that we are not warm, that we do not cry, that we do not love. And so I think it's really important that we readjust the balance. My name is Dari and I'm a dope black dad. I think black dads do have it harder because people just expect us not to be around. The stereotype is black dads are absent. Like if you have a child with a black man, he's gonna leave. So my name's Ash and I'm a dope black dad. The stereotype is just kind of boosted by the media in terms of kind of showing things on a negative connotation. And I think there's a lot of positive examples out there. And I do believe that there is a lot of great black dads out there and I know many of them. So it's just kind of showing a little bit more of that and showing exactly what we're about. My name's Kojo and I'm a dope black dad. There are particular issues that my children, I think, are going to face based on my childhood and me growing up. And stop and search, for example, especially for my boys. Perceptions of them as black people. They've got African names. So people making a judgment on them as they see their names written on a piece of paper before they've even seen them. I am hopeful that things will start to improve. The more integrated we become in society, the more accepting of other cultures and people will become. Hey, what's going on everybody? This is Ishmael from Dad Is Not A Noun. I have a special guest here. I'm truly blessed and humbled that he decided to join this conversation with me. Uh, he is across the pond. It's 12 at midnight where he's at at 7 o'clock. So I know he wants to go to sleep or, or watch um, some show because, you know, we have like daily routines at a certain time. We want to do this certain thing and then go to sleep. So, again, I appreciate him doing this for me because I know this is kind of like out of the routine. So I appreciate it. I have no, no other than Omar Kinkley. Did I pronounce the last name right? Kankia. Kankia? Yes. How you doing, sir? How you doing? I'm not too bad, brother. How are you? I'm doing all right. I was going to do the whole rock thing, but I felt like that was kind of um, going to be weird. 
Because I know <laughs> in one of the videos you had the rock intro. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. <laughs> so I was going to do the whole rock with the people's uh, eyebrow and everything like that. <laughs> but I decided not to do it. That's <laughs> nah, all good, man. It's all good. <laughs> Go with but, the flow, man. Go with the flow. <laughs> and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Um, so tell me a little bit about yourself, sir. Yeah, so I am 35 years old. I'm married to my beautiful wife, Comfort. We've been married now for it'll be six years in December. Um, and we've got two children. So Talia, who's five, and Xavier, who is two and a half. Um, we are both lawyers. I specialize in uh, mental health. So I represent people who've been detained under the Mental Health Act here in England um, to basically... Um, for the American viewers, um, what it means is somebody's been taken against their will because it's been deemed that they have a mental health condition and it's felt that they are a risk to themselves, either their own health, their safety, or they need to be detained for the protection of other people. So my role is that they will contact us and say, listen, I don't believe that I've got anything wrong with me. I need to be out back in the community. Can you come and help me? So I try to challenge the legal status of their detention um, they get legal aid, so they don't have to pay for our services because it's covered by anything to do with the Human Rights Act. Um, so yeah, I've been qualified uh, solicitor or lawyer for your for the Americans. Um, I've been qualified now for it's eight years. This year, I've been qualified. Um, I've been practicing in the field of mental health for the last ten years. Um, prior to that, I was also a community activist. I was a member of youth parliament so i had represented my local area um, at the uk youth parliament which is a huge organization where it kind of replicates our adult parliament so it gives young people the opportunity to represent their local areas in social action projects on a local regional and national level so i was involved with that for a good probably about 10 years of my life um started as a young person who was representing and then ended up becoming the London Region Coordinator for a few years, doing work here in the UK and also internationally in Australia, in the Middle East. Um, so yeah, so it's kind of, you know, my my life trajectory has been pretty much focused in community activism uh, in one way or another. So whether it's been on a voluntary basis or now as a, as a lawyer. Um, and yeah, that's kind of, um, that's where I'm at. And I'm also... Uh, extremely privileged to be part of the Dope Black Dad team. Um, I'm one of the senior leadership members um, in, in the team. So I kind of, well, I suppose my main role is I handle all of the press and the media for Dope Black Dads. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, I've been involved with that now for be two years in November that I got involved with um, Dope Black Dads. So yeah, that, that's me in the team. And I love what you're doing with the social media aspect of it. I think it's extraordinary. But also, I did my little research. You did run for office. Can you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> yes. <Yeah>, so <laughs> I, I ran for local council uh, in my area back in 2016. Yes, yeah, 2016. Because uh, yeah, my daughter was just a year old at that point. So I ran for local office. I came second to the incumbent who, who's been in power now for the last Oh, 15 or so years. Um, so yeah, but I mean, I've got um, my eyes on political office as well later on down the line. Um, obviously, you know, watching what happened in America in 2008 and seeing 
you know, Barack Obama being elected as president, which was such a, a monumental shift in American thinking and, you know, somebody who lives across the pond and, you know, I've grown up and, and, and I understand a lot about American history and it was just never ever did I thought that you, that, that you guys would ever elect a black president. Um, just never, never saw it happening. And the fact that it did happen, I remember staying up that night, watching the election night. It was just, it was beautiful to witness, you know, just the blackness that came into the White House and, you know, everything that the Obamas brought over the eight years that they were in, in, in office. And, you know, I'd love to see something similar happen over here in the UK. And yeah, I've got aspirations uh, i'd love to be the first black prime minister in the uk but... that's happening and <laughs> I, honestly i thought it would be a first black prime minister did a, a u.s president honestly you know yeah when it comes to like race when it comes to america and great in the uk honestly mm. I, I had that feeling i thought someone would have came out of the uk to be the first uh black uh, prime minister honestly i thought that was going to happen but i was I was kind of sh happily shocked yeah. to see that uh, Barack Obama won because mm -hmm. it was just a crazy time. And then yeah. people wanted something different. They wanted to change. 100%. Um, but, you know, what happens, like, you went from Obama to Trump, and that's a totally different story. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's been a very interesting three and a half years in American history. And I think, yeah, again, watching it from over here, seeing how you know, Americans policy has changed about so many different things. And yeah, it's, it's, it's scary times. Um, and obviously everything that's been happening, especially with Black Lives Matter and, and the escalation of that in the last few years, especially it, you know, it is, it is quite scary. And, you know, we stand in solidarity with our American brothers and sisters and everything that you guys are facing at the moment. And, um, yeah, you know, it, it is a it is a tough time. Um and you know, we've got what it's about fifty fifty odd days until the um the election in, yeah, in America. The clock, so the clock is ticking, the clock is ticking. It, um, it is indeed. Yeah, it, 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 it is it is and it is close too. Like it's because of the electoral college, you know, yeah. it's up for grabs. It, you know, we don't go by the popular vote. You know. No. So we'll see what happens. But um this the goal to that subject again, because mm. I know when it comes to here, or when it comes to, um, you know, represent representation, sometimes, you know, in the House and the, in the Senate, they don't rep actually, the idea of representation of the actual population in mm. certain key states. How is it, how is it in parliamentary in the UK? Is it the people that they elect, they are a reflection of the people? Because again, over here, it's all about how much money and, mm. you know, money, you know, says a lot when it comes to politics here in America. Is it kind of similar in the UK? I'd say it's less about money here because I think we're not, uh, yeah, I suppose we don't run on that kind of level in the same way. I think it's more to do with who you know in, right. in, in the UK. I think we operate on a more nepotistic basis and... Um, <clears throat> obviously because we've got the party political system. So we've got the two main parties, the Conservatives who are currently in power and the Labour Party. So very often you find that, you know, to, to get elected, to become a member of Parliament, you need to 
you know, you kind of need to do the work and you've got to be touted in the party, whatever party you're representing, and then they'll put you forward and then it's for the people to decide. I mean, most time, you know, like it is with any election anywhere in the world, there are certain places where you'll always have your guaranteed, this is a conservative area. You could put anything, you could put a broomstick on there and they will win as long as it has conservative on it, same with Labour. But obviously we saw a shift back in uh, last year when we had our general election and Boris Johnson was able to strengthen his majority in Parliament. So, you know, that saw a major shift because the Conservative Party were taking over places where, you know, it was traditional working class Labour heartland. So it shifted completely over here as well. So it's very, it's unpredictable, really. Um, And to your point about whether... You know, is it people that the merits of people that get selected? I think most of the time it is about, you know, how well known you are in the party, how much the party wants to push you as an individual. Uh, you know, if you're well liked, they'll put you somewhere that they know guaranteed you're going to win. If you're not well known or well liked, you know, they, you might still be given the opportunity, but you won't necessarily have the party machine behind you to help support you in what you're trying to do. So, yeah, it, it depends where you are in the country. Somewhere like London, which is obviously quite cosmopolitan, it's very diverse, you know, you tend to see there's more of a mix of ethnicities. And, and a lot of the inner city areas in the UK, places like Birmingham and Manchester, Leeds, you know, you will see more of a diverse member of parliament population. But then you go other places, very unlikely that you'll see a lot of um, people of colour in those areas um, because of the nature of the the areas that they're running in. Right. So it's not a lot of people of color that's in that's in office because of that, because it's that favoritism and who's next. Because it's kind of similar like over here too, a little mm-hmm. bit. This is like, it's like a pecking order, whether if it's a Republican or a Democrat, there's a certain form of pecking order. It's like, mm-hmm. if this person's been here, here for this long, then they're in that position. Mm-hmm regardless mm-hmm. of fact. So it kind of that that's it's kind of the same in a way too. Yes, it, it's similar. I mean, you know, we do have I, I suppose in terms of people of color, you know, that has increased massively because in I think it was 1983, I think it was 83 or 87, one of those two elections where we had the first people of color that were elected to parliament. Uh here, you know, it was the four four MPs that were elected, one of them, Diane Abbott, who's still, uh, she's a member of parliament for Hackney, Estate Newington, and she's still in parliament now. Uh, she's had a very stellar career. She was in the shadow cabinet um, up until last year. So, you know, but it's grown hugely since then. I mean, it, arguably, you know, I'd love to see more people of colour, um, but there's a whole debate around, you know, access to getting into these parties and being able to to stand and be able to challenge the, the status quo. But also, is there like, I know there's one thing here in America that I wish we had, um, like a, a political, um, can't think of that word, but that uh, political group, group that focused mm. on black agenda. Like we don't have that in America. We don't have like influencers to, f- to focus on black agenda in America. You mm. have some here and there in the Democrat party, but not an actual, like a group that focus on black agenda. Is that- yeah, 
I'm trying to think. I don't think we. I don't really think we have got that over here. I think it tends to be more. Well, I say that, but I mean, obviously, with dope like dads, we are, you know, becoming that. Really, um, you know, we are becoming more of the spokespeople around parenting issues. You know, especially in the black community itself and and beyond. Um, but I think it tends to be that groups will sprout up because of different reasons. So when we had the Windrush scandal here, you know, a large grouping was formed there. When we had the Grenfell Tower disaster from a few years ago, you know, you had a group formed from that. So it tends to be kind of born out of adversity as opposed to, you know, people purposefully wanting to do stuff. But, you know, I say that we've got organisations such as Operation Black Vote, which is trying to encourage more people of colour to join and to get trained up so that they can be ready to run for office. So it's a bit of a mix that goes on over here, really. Because I think that's the key thing too, is that here in America, we, we have groups that say, just get out the vote. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, you have to vote, but at the same time, I think there's a bigger thing too. Like, I think the one thing I read about you, you know, that you're all about policy making too. Yeah. And I think that's a big, important um, component of it which i don't think a lot of people in the u.s black community we're not all about policy and making so mm. can you talk about the importance of a policy making especially being a uh, part of uh, dope black dads how that kind of intertwined with each other in a way yeah i think you know policy making is very important because ultimately you know if you want to see change happen you need to be Round the table, you need to be trying to influence the change that happens. I mean, very often I find with protesting, you know, people will shout about the same thing, but ultimately it's easy to just ignore what people are saying because so what? You know, one has a right to protest, that's fine, but that doesn't mean we have to listen. The key with policy making and lobbying is that, you know, you are speaking to the people that are in power. You're trying to get yourself round the table as well and making sure that your voice is heard. And I think that's where you're able to really truly influence the change that happens in your community and i've always been a huge advocate of yeah it's one thing to protest you know i've got no issues with that but we need to make sure that when those decisions are being taken we are at the table and we are part of those discussions before those decisions are made because otherwise as i said people can just speak people can shout people can holler people can do whatever they want to do but if the people who make the change don't have you around the table, it's very easy to just block it out and just call it noise. I, I totally agree with that. And then also, you know, again, where did your passion come from of being, having empathy and humanity that kind of led you to, you know, when it comes to being a lawyer and the mental health aspect of it? Yeah, I think, I think I've always been like from a very young age, I've always been interested in politics. And I think a lot of that comes from my dad. I think we used to have conversations um, when I was a child. And I remember 1997 was when we had a shift in politics here in the UK. So that was the year that Tony Blair and the Labour Party won a huge majority. So from 1979 to 1997, we were under a conservative rule under Margaret Thatcher and then to John Major you know, the country had changed considerably in that time, but people who were from a lower socioeconomic background were kind of left behind. 
And I suppose, you know, at that point I was, I would have been what, 12 years old. So when, when that moment happened and, you know, my interest in politics was starting to, to peak around then and kind of trying to understand about why, why did people hate Margaret Thatcher so much? Why do people hate the Conservatives so much? What is it about new Labour? Um, so just trying to understand the dynamics of all of that and how that kind of affects things. And that really sparked my interest and then kind of running for and being part of my local student council and then being elected to be a youth member of parliament. All of those things just kind of continued. And through being a youth member of parliament, it meant that I suddenly was able to have access to um, decision makers. So I was able to start being around the table with policy makers, with secretaries of state a couple of times with the prime minister at the time as well so being able to have that level of influence and that 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 level of change and it made me realize from a very young age that actually if you want to change things you need to make sure that you are around that table uh, you know you need to make sure that you are targeting the people at the very top um to make those changes and i think one thing another I'm sure we'll come back to it in a bit but last year when with Dope Black Dads um, there's a film called Blue Story that was um, in the cinemas here in the UK Um, it was basically kind of a love story which had kind of gang connotations to it and there was an incident that happened in Birmingham which is the second largest city here in the UK and the View cinema chain took it out of circulation um, and they blamed was a there was an incident that happened in the foyer of a cinema in Birmingham but they blamed the film even though the incident hadn't taken place in the screening of the film itself I took umbrage with that for an article on it was a Sunday newspaper I was reading I sent it in the dope black dad's whatsapp group and I said you know this is outrageous you know why why is this happening blah 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 and I remember Marvin was saying Marvin Harrison who's the founder of dope black dad's he was saying okay well what should we do about it? You know, and I was just like, well, okay, you know what? Let's write a letter. Let's get some publicity around this and let's see what we can do to try and campaign to get this back. And I remember drafting. So I read this article at like quarter past one on a Sunday afternoon. I drafted the letter, sent it to the group. We agreed it by half past three. I had emailed it to the view cinema group, their legal team, uh, their chief exec published it on Twitter and then literally I was going to go pick up my kids from my sister-in-law's house in South London. Um, so I'm driving because I live in Essex, which is a county just outside, next door to London. And I get a call from somebody from the BBC, which is obviously the major news uh, outlet. And they said, we saw your tweet. We saw your letter. We're interested in, we want to speak to you about it. Can you come to the studios to talk about it tonight? I said, okay, that's fine. What time? And they're like, eight, eight thirty. I was like, okay, so it's like half past five. Um, I've got two children. I need to get back, drop them to mum, and then come back into London. And then so suddenly, you know, within like five hours of all of this kicking off, I was suddenly on national television talking about all of this. And then it just kind of spiraled. And I, I remember I did that TV appearance, and then. I had a phone call, I had a voicemail afterwards from another major, you know, TV channel here in the UK said, you know, can you come on our show in the morning? And then, you know, I ended up 
the next day so this is on the sunday so on the monday I remember for that whole day i was just spent doing media so i was going from radio station to radio station tv station to tv wow. station um literally just talking about the importance of all of this and the next day i was dropping my wife to heathrow because she was flying to new jersey actually for thanksgiving and i'm almost home and my phone rings, number I don't recognize. I pick it up. I'm like, you know, hello, who's this? And it's the chief executive of the View Cinema wow. <laughs> um, chain. Uh, he was like, listen, I've seen your email. I've seen your TV appearances. You know, I want to have an opportunity to put my side of the story, explain to you what's happened, which I thought was just crazy because, you know, here's a multimillionaire. Right. who's calling me part of you know he ain't he owns this massive cinema chain group but the negativity and the backlash that they received because of what they'd done right. meant that you know he couldn't ignore it because we kind of operated more of a slick campaign in the sense of it was a professionalized campaign so we weren't just hooting and hollering and just right. saying why are you taking this out of circulation? It was very much like we asked them very specific questions. You know, right. what was their decision-making process? How did they come to the conclusion that right. the incident yeah. was linked to the film, et cetera, et cetera. So the fact that it was more of a systematic questioning, quite forensic, I like to do that, obviously being a lawyer. Um, <laughs> but it was just crazy to me that the chief exec of the cinema chain contacted me to speak to me. And I remember me him and Marvin had a three-way telephone conference call. He was at Heathrow Airport because he was flying out himself to Canada to meet with his board to talk about this very issue. Wow. Uh, we was able to, you know, we, we had a conversation and literally within 48 hours of that conversation, the film was back in circulation in, in, in their cinemas. So to me, it just showed the level of, it was kind of that, that activist side of me, oh, but... Right it was more about, it wasn't just enough to say, okay, I'm going to go on Twitter and just say whatever and just throw it out there because people tweet all the time. But it was more about, because it was focused, because it had um, attention to detail and it was very specific with what we were targeting with, with them, that's what led to him reaching out to us and then eventually the film was back in circulation. So at the time... It took so from the Sunday the film was back in the cinemas by the Thursday. So within the ninety-six hour turnaround, you know, they were able to bring that back. And I remember ironically, just before the pandemic started, yeah. I had a meeting with a PR agency, um, and was talking about what happened. And um the guy was just like, Oh, so you know, how did you come up with this? Blah blah blah. And it turned out that he it was he I he was the guy that actually had advised them on how right. to handle the whole situation. So I had no idea. <laughs> um, so it's just very weird. Um, and yeah, so, but I think it just goes to show, I think when it comes to activism, when it comes to wanting to make a change and when it comes to wanting to affect policy, you've got to be, you've got to be smart about how you do it um, right. is what I found. Um, you know, people talk all the time. People say a lot of things and, doesn't mean that it's going to be listened to it's just about how can you drill it down to the point where somebody stands up and take notice i never was expecting to ever hear from the person that owns and runs that cinema group that was never you know never thought that, that would happen but the fact that it did meant that 
to me, it shows that that kind of thing definitely resonated to the point that he picked up the telephone and he called me to have a conversation because he was shook by what we had done and what we had achieved. So yeah, just goes to show power of um, being around the table with the big, with the big boys just makes a huge difference. And I think that's the most important thing is um, it's about our logic and emotions. And so what I got from that story was, yes, it was an emotional connect to it, but you utilize logic mm. and make people agree to what you guys were doing. Like, you know what? It does make sense. If I'm in that person's shoes, you know, it's just, yeah, it's like, you know, one plus one mm. is two. So, you know, it's, it's the obvious. And yeah. so separating logic and emotion when it comes to being a lawyer and dealing with mental health, um, how does that help you to win your case when you, you know, helping someone, especially like the individual, um, I think we alluded to earlier that you helped uh, under the, the Mental Health Act. How, mm -hmm. how, how, how were you able to, you know, navigate through that? Yeah, I mean, essentially, obviously, when somebody has been sectioned and detained under the Mental Health Act, this is somebody that's suffering from a mental illness. So their emotions are all over the place. It could be, you know, dealing with people that suffer from schizophrenia, people that suffer from bipolar, people that suffer from personality disorder. So, you know, using somebody, for example, that's got schizophrenia, they may be hearing voices, they may be feeling some level of aggression. And to me, my role as a lawyer is just to kind of, okay, I'll listen to what you're saying. I'll obviously try and empathize and understand what you're going through. But I need to also be able to, in a way, slightly detach from that and try and take more of an objective overview to what's going on um, because that's the only way I'll be able to kind of tackle the case. So I think if you work on an emotional basis, I feel like you don't get the best result for yourself and more importantly, you don't get the best result for the client because working on emotions doesn't work all of the time. You have to have a logic behind it. And sometimes that, you know, the emotional side of it may be, you know, you want to hold your client's hand and kind of tell them everything's going to be okay. But the logical side of it is like detaching yourself and saying, do you know what, realistically, I've seen all the information. This is, you're not going to get out right now. So do you want to put yourself through the whole feeling of going through a hearing, hearing all of these bad things about you, all this being said, only to be told that you're not going to be leaving. And I can tell you now, you're not going to be leaving or do you want to understand what I'm saying, you know, and taking a step back and thinking, okay, maybe I do need to progress a bit more. Maybe I do need to give this medication a trial for a bit longer and then be ready to, to, to go back out into the community. So it is about, I suppose in, early on in my career, it was very much about, okay, trying to hold, hold their hand and, you know, I suppose in a way trying to tell them what you think, they want to hear but then actually I, I realized that that's not helpful at all and just because somebody's mentally ill doesn't mean that they're stupid and I think you kind of have to again part of that is that detachment and being logical sometimes um, and it, it, of course you know there are going to be times when you have to have the emotion with it you know I've, I've represented patients as young I think my youngest client was um I think she was 12 years old uh, that I represented many, many years ago. And she was somebody that every year around her birthday would attempt to commit suicide because yeah. she thought that 
the voices in her head were telling her she was never going to live to see 18. Um, and I remember every single year without fail, I'd be getting a phone call. Um, and then she got to her 18th birthday and she's been out in the community ever since. And that was a good five years ago, you know, because the voices stopped at that point. So, you know, but again, you're dealing with somebody who's 12 years old. So you kind of, there is a different way of having to handle a young person and compared to obviously how you handle an adult and stuff. So every client is different. My approach obviously depends on who I'm dealing with and how much I think they can take in terms of, you know, the, the logic side of things and how much I think that they can, they can tolerate. Um, and sometimes, you know, it's a, it's a trial and error. Uh, you don't always know how it's going to work necessarily. Um, yeah. Sometimes, clients will accept what you're saying sometimes they won't but you know you just try and work in their best interests at the end of the day and i think transition into you know um like you were saying like you know that young lady you had dealt with that had the voices in in their in her head Mm -hmm. and i think as black men i think we all have those voices in our head Mm. when it comes to traumatization of being a black man as a as well as a black father Mm. So what I love about Dope Black Dad is that, you know, you guys utilize the emotion aspect of the traumatization of Black men, but the mm-hmm. logic of it. So can you talk about the early days of Dope Black Dads and why it was started and, 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 and its message behind it? Yeah, so I mean, Marvin was the one who set it up back in 2018. So yeah, was it? Yeah, two years ago now. So it was Father's Day, um, and he basically just kind of was feeling a bit low. Uh, he texted a group of his friends who were also fathers, and the movement kind of just it just spiraled from there, really. And it you know became a WhatsApp group, and that WhatsApp group grew and grew and grew, and you know spiraled into a Facebook group now as well. And it just turned into a whole movement. And the whole purpose about it behind Dope Black Dads is to educate to inspire to heal and to celebrate black fathers because we're all about trying to change the narrative of what it means to be a black father you know i think we can we can kind of um what's the word we can resonate on both sides of the pond here because i think the the perception of a black father in the uk in the us is usually one of they're absent they're in prison they are not present, they don't take part in any of the activities, they know nothing about their children, when actually the reality is that's incorrect, you know, black fathers, we are professional, we are engaged, we are very much part of our children's lives, and I think, sadly, because of the media perception that's been out there about what black fathers have been, it's kind of continues to be perpetuated, and we're just trying to say, well, we're not trying to, we are succeeded in trying to shift that uh that narrative and i think part of it with dope black dads is said you know to educate so educating ourselves about what it means to be a good father what it means to be present um you know what it means to be good husbands or boyfriends or partners or co-parents um you know we've all you know we've all got children so it's very much about trying to do what's best for the children in terms of the healing aspect it's about recognizing that we have gone through traumas in our lifetimes. You know, you can't escape it. Being black, 
living in the Western world, you cannot escape the fact that you would have suffered some form of trauma, whether that's directly, you know, issues to do with the police, with the justice system, with the education system, or it may be that, you know, the traumas that your parents have faced, which has then been kind of fixed onto you, and then you're dealing with those traumas as well, as well as your own traumas, that also has a huge bearing. And it's about trying to recognize, you know, we've gone through these things, but we need to kind of heal from it because if we don't heal from it, the cycle will continue and then we'll end up passing it on to our own children. So part of the healing process is about recognizing that. And we very much, we advocate, you know, where people can to try and go to therapy and unpick a lot of those traumas and try to understand what's happened in their lives and kind of how to move forward from it. Cause ultimately we don't want to continue this cycle of passing trauma on from generation to generation. As I spoke about earlier, you know, regarding Windrush, um, you know, and everything that happened around that. And I think that's kind of been passed down and, you know, I'm, I'm from, I've got Nigerian heritage and, you know, the issues around kind of, haven't been under British rule for so long and then you know parents coming over to the UK and everything that's kind of associated with that in terms of inspiring again it's about looking at us and saying you know we are dope in the sense of we are professional men we are present and we are trying to show that actually black men can be and are successful in what we try to do in life. And actually we want to use the platform to inspire other black men who may feel like actually, no, I don't know, you know, am I really, or am I just fit in this particular narrative that society has created for me? And actually we're saying, no, we're not doing that. And then that kind of brings us on to celebrating. So it's very much about recognizing what we are doing in our field. We are leaders in our fields. We are achieving in our fields of, you know, of, of, of our gifting. And it's very much, you know, obviously I'm a lawyer and Marvin specializes in kind of the public relations stuff. And we you know we've got doctors in the group. We've got sports professionals. We've got a whole range of people that are excelling in their areas. And it's about celebrating what they're doing and like I say, through all of that, hopefully we will be able to change the narrative and how people perceive black fathers. And I think what's great as well with dope black dads is, you know, we've got dope black mums as well and dope black women and dope black men. So the group, the dope black grouping is expanding all of the time. So it's not just saying we're not just focusing on you know, fatherhood, that motherhood, parenthood what it means to be a black man, what it means to be a black woman. Cause I think it's so important that we connect all of these cause it is connected, you know? Um, and it's, re- it's important that we recognize and we delve deeper into each different facet because the issues that mums face is very different to the issues that dads face, but we're all kind of interconnected. So I think quite a lot of us who are dope black dads, you know, I think a lot, lot of our wives are in Dope Black Mums as well. So, you know, it's interesting because I know my wife's in part of Dope Black Mums and kind of hearing some of the conversations that they have and the conversations that we have and kind of bringing that together and stuff. So, yeah, I think it's uh, it's just great to be part of such a, a fantastic movement. And it is. And I love how you guys use the word dope. Because yeah. in our culture, we turned a word that was a noun and we made it into an adjective. Yeah. 
<laughs> and it's so powerful. It's simple, but very effective. So mm -hmm. um, where did Marvin come up with that concept of, you know what, I'm going to use the word dope? I, you know, I'm not really sure. Um, I think no, knowing Marvin as, you know, I, I think it's, it's a word that's in his vernacular. So, you know, it's, it's something that he uses a lot. Um, and I, I can imagine... <laughs> you know, I've only known Marvin for a couple of years but I can imagine that is something that he would have used quite a lot and actually like you said I think taking it taking a noun and turning it into an adjective you know knowing him as I do that is something that consciously I think he would have would have been doing and, and again it's about language is important as well and we're kind of trying to reclaim words and trying to turn negatives into positives and I think it's important you know Obviously, dope is associated a lot of times with, you know, drugs and stuff. And I remember even my mother-in-law, you know, she was like, is he part of, am I part of uh, some kind of drugs group? And I'm like, no, <laughs> it is, no, we're not, we're not part of, well, she's of that generation. So I'm just like, no, it's not, it's not a drugs group. You know, I don't have a drugs issue. Um, it's just that we are taking a negative word and flipping it and making it into a positive thing. And, and and I think it's resonating because people, we are getting that recognition um, all over, you know, and I think what's great is we have got a group in, in New York, you know, there are a group of dope like that in New York. We've got a group in, in South Africa. And I think it's something that's going to continue to expand because dope black dads are everywhere. So, you know, it's about making people re be recognized um, in what they're doing, no matter where they are in the world and kind of celebrating that and celebrating everything that they're about. And I love it because I see it as a fraternity of uh, black excellence. Yeah. Whether it's moms or dads or even yeah. too. It's, t it's that key affirmation, you know, like, oh, this dad is this, this dad, yeah. If this dad is this, I'm definitely that dude too. So I, I love that feeling. But um, going back to the traumatization, uh, mm. I love what you guys do in your podcast because I, I listen to you guys' podcast and I enjoy mm. it. And my favorite was, because um, I, again, I love how y'all use the logic aspect of it. When y'all talk mm -hmm. about mediocre, uh, mediocrity, I love that conversation you had. Yeah. Because in America, we look at it as, uh, uh, as something bad that you mm. live up to your potential. But the way you kind of, talked about it, y'all looked at it like, oh, it's not bad because maybe that person, um, you know, a trash man or, you know, mm. this and that. If this is what they want to do, then that's what they want to do. Yeah. They shouldn't look frowned upon. Like, not everybody's going to be a Kanye West. Not everybody's going to be a Will Smith. Yeah. As long as that person is happy working that nine to five job mm. or whatever, then, you know, let them. Yeah. Don't and make I, them feel kind of bad because that's, you know, they're happy where, mm. they're, where they're at. And I think, again, part of that comes from the trauma aspect because I think a lot of that is passed down from parents in terms of, you know, parents maybe have not achieved the goals that they want to achieve. So therefore they are trying to impart that onto their children. And then, you know, you have all sorts of pressures that come along with that because suddenly you're like, God, um, if I'm not a doctor, or if I'm not a lawyer, or if I'm not this, or if I'm not that, I'm a failure to my parents. And it's kind of like that whole trying to live up to expectations. And I think what we're trying to do is say, yes, you know, everyone, you know, people have expectations of everyone. You know, I've got 
you know, I'm sure my wife's got expectations and me have got expectations of her. But ultimately, it's about what expectations you have of yourself. As long as you're comfortable and you're happy with what you're doing and you're excelling at what you're doing and you feel that, you know, you're giving 110% and you feel like you're achieving what you want to achieve, then that person shouldn't be ridiculed for that. I mean, if it is being a trash man, if it is kind of working a nine to five, if that gives them joy and that gives them a sense of worth and being and, you know, they're excelling at it, then that should be celebrated and never should be discouraged. I think the issue becomes if you are doing something because you're not wanting to challenge yourself or, you know, you're just kind of, you're afraid to challenge yourself, then, you know, as dope black dads, we kind of look at it, well, okay, what's holding you back? What's stopping you? And I think so many stories have come out uh, within the group during the pandemic that's been going on in terms of people just taking the leap from doing the nine to five to suddenly, you know, I'm going to run my own business. Um, you know, I'm going to set up, I've got the contacts, I've got the leads. And I think, you know, being at home has allowed people to really reevaluate where they're at and what they're trying to do and what they're trying to achieve in life. So I think in a way the pandemic has been really good and we've had, you know, so many conversations uh, as a group about so many different things and I think you know it's people have come to realizations I know sadly a few people have decided that their marriages are not not what it is and you know they've parted ways but again it's kind of that sense of you found that sense of happiness for yourself and that sense of acceptance so we'll be there to support you through that journey you know of that that journey of separation and what that means and how it's going to play out so yeah, I think it's just important to celebrate people more than anything. And as long as you are comfortable and you feel like you've hit the targets that you're hitting and you're happy with that, then, you know, that's what's most important. And then also, how were you able to break that traumatization? Because I know going back to, you know, what we were talking about of how, um, you know, when you were growing up, your parents told you you have to work three times harder than your white counterpart to make it. And I mm -hmm. love what you said that, you know what, uh, I don't know if it were you or another gentleman that said, you know what, I don't, I, don't, I don't tell that to my kid. I tell my kid that be happy of what you want to do. You know, you're mm -hmm. not in a race with anybody. So can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think, again, part of that is, you know, for us as parents going through those journeys and kind of break, trying to break that cycle. I know for me, like, um, you know, my own mental health kind of suffered a little bit last year. Uh, you know, I left my job and, you know, had a breakdown because, um, you know, I suffered massive burnout and I ended up doing therapy actually during the pandemic and kind of made me realize some of the traumas that I was holding on to growing up um and kind of kind of dealing with that and letting go of that and i think that's allowing me to be like okay you know what? when it comes to my own children i'm never going to put those kind of limitations or those restrictions that this is the only thing that you can do or this is what i think you should do i, I think you know speaking having had discussions with my wife about things it's like you know very much we're saying we'd like the kids to be educated to a certain level but what they do beyond that is up to them you know, it's not about, you know, we're both lawyers. So we're not saying that the expectation is you two must become lawyers as well. We're just saying, you know, get yourself educated to a certain degree because then that allows you 
opportunities um you know be able to kind of go out and and explore but don't feel that you are confined to wanting to do something conversely if they do decide that they want to become lawyers then you know i'm not going to discourage them either so but it, it needs to be something that they they get to themselves rather than that feeling of i must do that i mean i don't have lawyers in my family but i've ended up becoming a lawyer you know so it's weird because i think up to a point i wasn't too sure if i wanted to be a lawyer i kind of wanted uh, i loved history and, and obviously i love politics but you know lawyer being a lawyer kind of gives me a bit of a mix of everything so gives me that activism and being able to represent people which is something that i enjoy doing um but again i feel like you know being a lawyer isn't going to be what's going to define me as well so you know my aim eventually is to transition into politics so you know that is kind of where my next big thing will be in life so yeah it's just about just having those conversations and I think for us just dealing with those traumas and accepting that they are traumas accepting that these are things that have happened to us but we need to deal with it I hear you man and then also I remember I don't know if it were you in the interview you talked about legacy you know, mm. in America, we look at legacy, you know, you know, you know, we want to set something up for our kids so they can have a better life. But you kind of, in a in an interview, you kind of spin legacy a little bit different. I don't know if it was you and Marvin. You looked at legacy as being selfish, like um, um, it, as a way of, you know, kids living through your life, they should live their life. Yeah, I think that was, I'm sure, I think that was Marvin Critchlow that was, that meant, that spoke about legacy. And yeah, I think it's about, for us, I think ultimately the legacy that we leave isn't, okay, you carry on doing the work that we've started. It's more about the legacy that we all want to leave is giving our children the tools to be able to, <coughs> excuse me, being able to, ex to excel and succeed in life. And to me, that's the most important legacy that I want to leave my children. So, you know, the day that I'm no longer here, I want them to be able to kind of look back and think, you know what, dad helped us with the tools in life and being able to understand how to navigate things. And, you know, obviously if I'm able to give them a leg up in some respects, then I will. Um, but just kind of getting to that point rather than dad started this, so therefore I need to continue with this. Because I think, you're right it's too too often people get caught up with perceptions because i think we live in a society and in a world now where it's all about how many likes can you get on instagram or twitter or facebook and how many people can talk about what it is that you're doing and people very much live in the now and people don't tend to think beyond the next day um what they're trying to do so for me it's just like i can't really think like that because you know especially when you've got kids you can't really think on that basis that, you know, what might, I, I can't just think about what's going to happen after five o'clock uh, just today. You know, I have to think beyond that because, you know, the decisions that I make, anything that I do doesn't just have an impact on me anymore. It has an impact on three other people in my life. So, you know, you're, you're constantly forward thinking, forward planning. And yeah, I think that's just kind of, I suppose that's, that's what it is, what it is really. And I love it, man. I love it. And my last question is, uh, what does uh, being a father 
being a lawyer, being a husband, just a, a, a jack of a trade mean to you? I think being, I suppose, start with being a father is the best thing I've ever done. It's the best job that I can have. And I think, you know, being able to know that I'm nurturing two people, um, you know, trying to get them into the world and navigating stuff, especially, you know, being black as well. It's important. And I think for me, the importance of that is part of what I do now is trying to dismantle a lot of these structures, dismantle a lot of the perceptions that people have so that my kids don't go through a lot of the stuff that I've gone through or the stuff that my parents have gone through. So it's kind of trying to pave the way, you know, not claiming that we're going to solve those issues, but if we can make it easier for them, then to me, that's, you know, that's what's been great. I think being a husband, you know, I, I, you know, it's one of the most blessed, blessed things I've ever done in my life. And, you know, I love my wife to bits and I think she's the most amazing woman in the world. And I think when I look at her and see how she is with our children, how she is with her family, with her friends, with me. And it just, you know, it just makes me incredibly proud that I'm married to this woman. And I'm just so proud that everything that she does on a day to day, you know, she doesn't grumble, she doesn't gripe. She just, you know, she gets on with it. She works in a very high pressured environment herself. And, you know, it's just beautiful to, to witness um, everything that she does. As a lawyer, <coughs> again, you know, I place huge value on being able to represent those that are the most vulnerable in society. Because I think, you know, obviously with law, people tend to think, oh, you, you, you're there to make money. And, you know, to me, that's not what it's about. It's about giving people hope. It's about giving people a chance and, you know, recognizing that, yes, you may have gone through a tough time in your life, but that doesn't need to be the thing that defines you for the rest of your life. And if I can do something to help get you on your journey back into where you need to be, then, you know, that's what it's about for me. That's dope. And that's what a dope black dad is all about. Indeed. <laughs> Brother, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. No worries. My home is your home. Um, thank you. Likewise. Hey, if you guys got an open spot on your podcast, I'm available. Oh, yes, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll holler at the boys about this. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll definitely get you on. I appreciate that, man. Thank you for coming on, man. No worries, um, one more thing, tell people out there where they can find you. Yeah, so we are, if you Google Dope Black Dads, we are on Twitter, we are on Instagram, we're on LinkedIn, we're obviously, Facebook is our big one. Uh, you know, if you do want to join um, the Facebook group, if you just Google Dope Black Dads, the, the Facebook group, and then you just got to answer a few questions. So provided you are a black dad, uh, you know, you are kind of who you say you are because we have had some interesting people trying to join the group women, um, white men who, you know, allies that's great, but it's not the space for you. Uh, but we are working on ways, uh, but we are working on ways in which we can kind of, you know, give people who are allies the opportunity to align themselves with us. Me personally, I uh, again, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Twitter, Umar Kankia, I'm on LinkedIn, same. Uh, Instagram uh, as well and Facebook as well. So yeah, you know, if you want to hit me up, hit me up. I'm always open to talk. 
So, man, and then also, if you need a campaign manager down the road, let me know. <laughs> oh, we'll do one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, a politic nerd myself, too, so I'm putting oh, that babe, out. I, I could tell. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brother. Thanks again, man. No worries. Take care. So for you, yeah, yo There whenever it matters and even more when you feel like it doesn't Protect you so you never feel like you wasn't Know I'm right alongside you, here but that I'm behind you But always got you, end of discussion, nothing means more First wanna offer his shoulders for what you preach for Thought I saw the eyes of the world until I seen yours And know that I ain't see a better view yet I'm with whatever, so don't ever you fret Know that you covered, not a hurdle or a heartbreak To change what a partake Cause none of them won't ever get comfortable in your walkway My job is to aware you, fully loaded, prepare you For all of the above that I'm never letting get near you But still in all, give you every advantage I found Couldn't find a better fit for them, along with my crown And since the baton was passed, hopping down Cause feeling's not an option, and dad is not a noun, not at all my message to any dad, man, first off, know that, yeah, it, it is a hard job, but it's the greatest job in the world. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I wouldn't change anything about it. Everything you're doing from here on out, if it didn't have purpose before, now it has purpose. It's the most important thing you'll ever do. Just be a dad.